Good morning. My name is Hannah. The Old Testament reading is found in Psalm 133. Look at how good and pleasing it is when families live together as one. It is like expensive oil poured over the head, running down onto the beard, Aaron's beard, which extended over the collar of his robes. It is like the dew on Mount Hermon, streaming down onto the mountains of Zion, because it is there that the Lord has commanded the blessing, everlasting life. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Becca. The New Testament reading is found in Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. Therefore, as a prisoner for the Lord, I encourage you to live as people worthy of the call you received from God. Conduct yourselves with all humility, gentleness, and patience. Accept each other with love and make an effort to preserve the unity of the Spirit with the peace that that ties you together. You are one body and one spirit, just as God also called you in one hope. There is one Lord, our faith, our one baptism, and one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Katie. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading found in John seventeen twenty through 23. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. The Gospel of the Lord. Let's remain standing as we pray. So Father, we ask that by your Holy Spirit you would open up our hearts, open up our minds, help us to see you today through all of this and help us to begin to be made more into your image, the image of Christ Jesus, we pray. In his name, everybody said, amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everybody. He's risen. I know, we're we're all going to grow in this together, aren't we? To keep celebrating the party, the joy, the feast of the resurrection for the next several Sundays. To help us with that, we're doing this series called Living the Resurrection. What does it mean to live as resurrection people? What does it mean to live out this resurrection life? So last week on Easter Sunday, uh, we explored the risen Jesus calling Three specific people, we talked about Jesus meeting Mary Magdalene in the midst of her sorrow and him calling her by name. And then we talked about Jesus meeting Thomas in the midst of his skepticism and inviting him to put his hands on the scars that Jesus carries in his body. And then we talked about Jesus meeting Peter, disheartened in his own failure, covered with his own shame. And Jesus, the risen Jesus, saying, Peter, let me take you back to the beginning. Let's start with a newness of life so that, that you can know that you not, you're not going to be defined by this failure in your life. And so when we, you know, we, we've 
we come off of that sort of high of last week. I'm like, man, that was awesome. That was so great. I love it. Jesus is calling me out of my sorrow or my skepticism or my shame. Like, hallelujah. You know, and then you're like, now what? I mean, I went to the grocery store Monday trying to find Cadbury eggs and they didn't have any. You know, it's like the party is over. And we just want to know, well, now how do we live this out? What does this actually mean? And so we're going to do a six-week series on Ephesians chapter 4, 5, and 6. The book of Ephesians, just a little bit of backdrop. We know that Paul wrote this book from prison. And Paul had deep relationships in the city of Ephesus. If you ever want to read a little bit of the story of this congregation, Acts 19 gives us a a lot of this backdrop. And you see Paul weeping with the elders of Ephesus when he has to leave them. There's this emotional, relational connection with this church. This isn't a letter that Paul sort of wrote like like today. You know, we write an open letter to so-and-so, you know, and it's a blog to people you don't really know, right? This is Paul writing to believers that he had deep close relationships with people he loves dearly. And he opens up Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, talk about how Jesus is bringing things back together again, that because of Jesus' resurrection, there's a redemption that's going on of all things. And so Ephesians 1, verse 10, Paul says, one day in Jesus, all things in heaven and on earth are going to be brought back together together again. And then Ephesians 2, Paul talks about how those of us who were dead in our sins or distant because we were far away have been brought back together with God. So a human race that was far from God is being reunited with God. And then Ephesians 3, he talks about Jews and Gentiles, people who didn't think they had very much in common, people who didn't really want to be around each other very much, people who wouldn't really even eat with, with one another. And Paul says, look, if you belong to the risen Christ, you are being fitted together with one another. So this whole logic of the book of Ephesians is about Christ's resurrection, putting things back together again. And so we pick up the story in chapter 4 of Ephesians and Paul's trying to say, okay, now I want to tell you what this means for your living. And so he opens Ephesians 1 with this sentence, therefore as a prisoner for the Lord, I encourage you. He switches his tone. A number of the commentaries say Paul's moving from kind of a preaching, teaching mode to this pastoral coming alongside mode of saying, okay guys, now let's live a certain way. And so he says, I encourage you to live as people worthy of the call you received from God. Now this word worthy, this word worthy is this word axios and it's used very often to talk about scales. So if you were to go to the marketplace and you say, I need a pound of, of flour or something, they'd say, okay, great, that'll be this amount of shekels. Or, and they put the weight of the money on the other side of the scales and it needs to sort of balance out. And then you say, aha, that is a worthy price. So this is a worthy product. It is equal weight. And Paul is using this as a, as a metaphor, as a way of saying, let your living be of equal weight to your calling. Let your living be of equal weight to your calling. Our living must be of equal weight to our calling. N.T. Wright translates it this way. He says, you've got to live up to the calling that you've received. There's this weighty calling here. Now our living must be of the same weight, must be of equal weight. So the question is, okay, well, what's the calling What is this calling that we're supposed to have? I need to know what's on the one side of the scale so that the living can be of equal 
wait. Well, this idea of the church, this notion of a people who are called the church, you may be familiar with this, but this word for the church is the called out ones, the ecclesia. And, and to some degree, it's just a normal word. It's just a normal word for an assembly. And so you say, oh, what's this assembly over here? What's this assembly of people going? It might have been used in sort of public affairs. Oh, look, there's a, there's a little gathering happening on the courtyards. It's just an assembly. So in one sense, the church is just an assembly, right? But also the sense of being a people who've been called out would have had resonances for the Jews in Paul's congregation. They may have thought about Exodus, about Israel being called out of Egypt. They may have thought that Christ is doing this this work of redeeming, of rescuing a new kind of people. And so for all of us as the church, we are a people who've been called out. But if they're thinking about Exodus, then they would have realized you're not just called out of something, you're called out of something in order to be called into something. They were called out of Egypt so that they could be called into the promised land. And so this idea of being the church as a called out people means that we are called out of the world into a new community, the people of God. Now this is something that's hard for us to get because we love the Jesus and me stuff. We love the like, well, it's just, it's just me and Jesus, and I love Jesus, and Jesus loves me, and I don't know about the church, and I don't know about all of you, but as for me and Jesus, right, that's kind of how we would retranslate Joshua 24. I don't know about y'all, but as for me and Jesus, we're going to have fun together. It's just us. We've got this thing going on. It's me and Jesus. And so we have a whole lot of people today who have committed to following Jesus individually apart from the church. And we just have to wrestle with this right up front that this would have been foreign to Paul, to Paul and to the early Christians. This would have been absolutely foreign. You couldn't say to someone, hey, how do you feel about Jesus? Love Jesus. What do you think about church? Eh. Nobody would it just wouldn't even, it would not compute. Because to be a follower of the risen Jesus is to be part of the community of resurrected people, of people who are experiencing resurrection. Now, it's, it's tough for us to think about this. I, I, I've lived in Colorado for 17 years. I'm as close to a Coloradan. I'm not a you know, native Coloradan, but like the bumper sticker says, I got here as fast as I could. But I realized that my first summer here in the summer of 2000, I met a buddy who I'd gone to college with, and he's from here, and he was like, Glenn, let's go, let's go have some fun after the Friday night college service. I was like, great, what, what do you have in mind? To me, you know, you go out for pizza and you talk or whatever. He was like, no, we're going to go four-wheeling, you know? And I was like, I, I don't know about that. Uh, and he says, trust, this is what we do. So we get in his Jeep Wrangler uh, off on these trails off of Mount Hermon Road, and to him, this was the greatest thing ever because he was riding, driving a motorized vehicle on roads that were not actually roads. <laughs> you know, can't stop me. And as Coloradans, this is, we are the epitome of rugged Western individualism, right? It's like this, I'm going to blaze my own trail. Thank you very much. Only the tough people kind of settle here in Colorado, you know. The rest of those weaklings stayed east of the Mississippi or whatever, but we are the pioneers, right? Great. And so we bring this paradigm into our walk with Jesus and we say, I'm going to follow Jesus no matter what. And Jesus says, that's great, but 
but you don't follow me privately. So this call of Jesus that we experienced last week to Mary and Thomas and Peter, it's deeply personal but never private. The call to follow Jesus is deeply personal but never private. Even with Mary, Jesus says, now go back and tell the disciples. She's like, what if I don't like the disciples? Jesus, go back and tell them the good news. Thomas is there with the brothers. Peter is fishing with some of the lads. And in each one of these situations, Jesus has a way of turning them back toward the group because following Jesus is deeply personal but never private. We're called into a new community. So what kind of living is equal to that kind of calling? What kind of living matches that kind of calling? Ephesians 4, verse 2 and 3, follow along here. Conduct yourselves with all humility, gentleness, and patience. Accept each other with love and make an effort to preserve the unity of the Spirit with the peace that ties you together. Isn't it interesting that before Paul goes on to say anything else about how to live in a way that is of equal weight to your calling, the first thing Paul wants us to get is that living in unity is what makes our living equal to our calling. Equal weight to our calling. Living in unity makes our living equal to the weight of our calling. And we're like, oh no. This is a problem because we all know that as Christians, the thing we're worst at is living in unity. The thing we're best at is saying how each other's wrong. Right? How do we do this? I remember about eight years or nine, eight or nine years ago or so when I was going through the process of becoming a naturalized citizen. So I I had come on a student visa back in the late 90s and then um, uh, had a religious workers visa for a year or two. And then when I when I married Holly, we turned that I was able to turn that into a green card. And so you can hold your green card for a number of years and then you can actually apply for citizenship. And so I applied for citizenship. And part of the process is an interview with your spouse because they want to make sure that you're actually married. Like, yeah, we've seen the marriage license, but we want to just be, are you actually living the way you're calling yourself? You're calling yourself married. I just need, is your living of equal weight to your calling? And so we're like, thinking, oh, what do we have to do to prove this? You know, so we're packing a duffel bag full of like photo albums and birthday cards and little notes that we've written. I'm just, just a way to show that, no, we actually are living together. I think this is a little bit like what it's like. To say, wait a minute, you're called the family of God, but is your, are there any pictures to prove this? Are you living really in separate households, separate checking accounts, occasional text messages about stuff, but no real life together, right? Paul's saying your living in unity is what matches the weight of your calling as a community, Your living in unity has to match your calling as a community. But here's the good news. You don't actually have to create this unity. Sometimes we we think when we talk about unity, we're like, okay, so I've got to make us one. I've got to create this unity. But Paul goes on, he says, you you don't create this unity. God creates this unity. Listen to verse 4. You are one body. He doesn't say try to become one body. He says you are. You already are. You are one body and one spirit, just as God also calls you in one hope. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. God has created 
our unity in the Spirit through the Lordship of Jesus Christ. God has created. It's a reality that only God can create. This is not, we don't manufacture and say, well, I feel the unity, so therefore we must be in unity. So no, no, it's created. It's a created spiritual reality that's something that God has done in the Spirit through the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Whether you like it or not, we are one family. Whether you like it or not, we are one. It, it's, it's the reality that God has created. And I know every parent in the room, you've had a moment probably with your kids where you've said something like this, right? We're like, listen, I don't care that you hate each other right now. You're family, right? And you're like, well, I don't like him. Well, you don't get to choose. He's your brother. She's your sister, whatever. I mean, every one of us has probably had some version of that speech to your kids. You're like, listen, hey, hey, you don't get a choice. Like, you don't create this unity. It was given to you. That's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, you you don't need to try try to be, pick and choose who you want to be one body with. No, no, you are one body. It is the reality. It's there. God has created this unity in the Spirit through the Lordship of Jesus. But... We get to enter this unity through baptism and preserve it through peaceable living. One of the things that's so beautiful about witnessing water baptism is it's a way of saying, oh yeah, this person, it's not just a Jesus and me moment that they're having here. This is why we we try as much as possible to make baptisms public. Because it's not a Jesus and me moment, it's a Jesus and the body of Christ moment. Where we say, not only are you saying new life has come into you, but you're also saying, and now meet your new brothers and sisters. This is your family. The the baptized community of Christ. This is your new family. We are entering into this together. One of the metaphors of baptism is actually the waters of new birth. The waters of a spiritual birth. So we enter into this unity through baptism and preserve it through peaceable living. I'll never forget uh, years ago, when I first moved here, a friend of mine, uh, had uh, see, his, his dad had season tickets to the Broncos games, and he had since taken it over. But at the time, you know, you know how it is with these things, you, you get handed whatever seats you get, right? And so that season, their seats were up in the, like, way up there, you know? Like, you, you really couldn't see any, much of what was going on, but you were in the stadium. And I discovered a kind of unity I had never known before. The first time at a sporting event, and specifically a first time at a Broncos game, and I was hooked. And you know there was something special because we didn't win the game. We lost to the hated Raiders, and Brian Greasy was our quarterback. And he threw an interception right at the two-yard line, you know. So it was, not, it was not about the game. It was about this whole experience of saying, here we are in the stadium together, and the few good moments that did happen, it was like, all of the fans around it, we were one in that moment. And we came from different places, different backgrounds. The person in front of me was drinking quite a bit. But there were these few moments in the game where it was like, we were like hugging one another and jumping up and down. We're like, yeah! You, know? so you put on Broncos fan gear and all of a sudden you are one. You, know? you enter into this new community. And there's something, it's not a perfect metaphor, of course. But there's something like that. When we enter into the waters of baptism, we enter into, we're, we're clothing ourselves with Christ. And we say, no other name on this sweatshirt. No other name. No, no other name marks me. I'm marked by the name of Jesus. I belong to this. And now, it's, now we begin to preserve it 
through peaceable living. So how do it? How do we do that? Do that? Paul takes us through this with a few things in this, this section of chapter 4. How do we actually live peaceably with one another? The first thing I want to say is by taking on the right posture. By taking on the right posture. Verse 2 and 3 again, listen to this. Conduct yourself with all humility, gentleness, and patience. Accept each other with love. That's a posture of the heart. It's pretty hard to preserve the peace when you're set on being right. <laughs> when you're set on being, no, I, I'm going to show how right. I, if you won't have humility or gentleness or patience, it's pretty hard to preserve the peace. Some time ago I was headed to an appointment with someone who I had a feeling that in the, in the meeting he was going to confront me about something And so headed into the meeting, I had prepared all my rebuttals. I'm sure you never do that. It's like, oh, I just need to tell them that this and this and this. And as I was about to leave my car and walk into the the place where we were were meeting, I I was like, Lord, just give me grace today to let this meeting go well, you know. And right away I felt this like kind of impression in my heart. It was like the Holy Spirit saying, no, no, don't pray for that. Pray for humility because I always give grace to the humble. No, Lord, I want you to make this meeting go well. It's like, no, 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 you pray for humility and the meeting will go well, right? Well, no, not a guarantee, but you have a better chance. And Paul says, look, you want this to work. Take on the right posture, humility, gentleness, patience, accepting each other. And then secondly, by making an effort. Verse 3 there says, and make an effort to preserve the unity of the Spirit. So the second requirement or part of living peaceably with one another is it requires making an effort. This word here is about taking pains. It's about being conscientious. Man, don't you just wish that once you said yes to Jesus, you would be zapped into the most peaceable person ever? Like, what? I took communion. I was water baptized. I went up for prayer. Fill in the blank. It's not going to zap you. I saw a friend this week was talking about the difference between waking up and growing up. That sometimes an encounter with God can wake you up, but that doesn't, that's not the same as doing the work of growing up. And I tell you, we have an immaturity in the body of Christ because we keep seeking experience after experience to get woken up. I need to go to another worship thing. I need to go to another prayer meeting. I I just need something else to wake me up. Like God's like, no, you need to grow up. Like you don't need more goosebumps to wake you up. You already know. Now it's time to grow up, make an effort, learn new habits, work against your flesh until it becomes second nature. It's not going to start out natural. But as you cooperate with the Holy Spirit, 10 years in, 15 years in, 20 years those things may not trigger you in the same way they used to trigger you. You may feel yourself saying, okay, okay, I know why I'm getting so mad about that, but you know what? That's just because that hit my ego right there, but okay, I'll let that go. And you start to become more aware of it. You're making an effort. And then the third thing Paul says that helps us actually live peaceably with one another. We may not have guessed it, but it's actually the diversity of the gifts in the church. So by taking on the right posture, by making an effort, and thirdly, by embracing the diversity of gifts. Verse 7, God has given His grace to each one of us, measured out by the gift, same word, the grace, 
that is given by Christ. In a way, what Paul, if, if you could use capital letters, what he's kind of saying is God has given each one of us a little G grace that's measured out in accordance to the capital G grace that's given by Christ. The greatest gift of all is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. But because of that capital G gift, there are these little G graces, gifts that are given to us. And what are they? In other places like Corinthians and even Romans 13, Paul will talk about things like words of knowledge and prophecy and all of that. But here he's talking about people. He's talking about functions of office almost. Verse 11, he gave some, these are his graces, he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastor teachers, pastors and teachers. And his purpose was to equip God's people for the work of serving and building up the body of Christ. Stop right there for a moment. Who does the work of serving and building up the body? We, we all do. So wait a minute, I thought we had pastors to do that. No, no, no. Pastors do the work of equipping all of us so that we all serve and build up the body of Christ. I'm telling you, one of the traps of a growing church is we start to get into this mentality that says, let's just grow a little bit bigger so we can hire people to do the work of the ministry. Let's just hire people to do it. Can we, can we pay someone to do that? And Paul's saying, no, no, no. The offices exist to equip the saints to actually do the serving and the building up of the body of Christ. We are supposed to do this for one another. So for, for a lot of us here, yes, do we have people in vocational ministry on staff at New Life Downtown? You bet. But none of us view our role as being the ones who do it all. First of all, we can't. Secondly, it's not the purpose of the church. We're, we're, we're trying to approach this to say, okay, God, if I'm teaching, let me teach in a way that equips the saints for the work of me. If I'm pastor, let me pa- if someone's prophesying, if someone's the evangelist, if so, whatever the, the offices are that, that people hold, let it be so that all of us can serve. See, sometimes we get into this, this, this rut of, of this trap of thinking that, well, I only serve because they need me and I've got to keep the organization running, right? I just got, I just got to keep the programs going. There's a certain validity to that, a certain reality of, like, well, if we don't have people, we, you know, but at the end of the day, if we didn't have people to run a classroom or a program, guess what? We just wouldn't have it. We wouldn't have it. Like, That's fine. We're not going to have fifth, uh, you know, first through fifth class today for children's ministry. Why? Because we didn't have people equipped to serve. We didn't have people willing to serve, right? But the greatest tragedy is, wouldn't be that we closed down a program. The greatest tragedy would be that the church failed to be the church and minister to one another, right? The greatest tragedy of that is that we wouldn't be living out the serving of one another, the equipping of one another. So the these diversity of these gifts point out several things. First of all, it highlights for us that unity does not mean uniformity. That the path to unity is not for all of us to just be the same, Right? That actually diversity is the result of Christ's gift. But here's the, the real kind of point of all of this. That the diversity of these gifts is designed to bring us into maturity. It's designed to bring us into maturity. And you know what, friends? Without maturity, living in unity becomes pretty difficult. Living in unity. I mean, I mean, think about it even in the, in the natural kind of thing with kids. When kids are young, all they can think about is themselves, right? And part of the parenting progression is 
first teach, I'm going to teach you to take responsibility for yourself. Clean up your own room. Fold your own clothes. But then as they grow older, you say, now I want to teach you to take responsibility for others. I want you to see that you're part of this whole thing together. Uh, start to help. Start to share. Start to think about how you can, right? So there, there's, there's sort of this both and. But maturity is what makes unity possible. And without maturity, we can't actually live out the reality of our unity. This is why I like hanging out with people who've been walking with Jesus for a long time. You ever been with someone who's in their 60s or 70s and walking with Jesus for decades and they've, they've, they've not just got mileage, but they've actually got maturity, right? And, and when I spend time, with them, one of the things I realize is they're not as hung up about the petty things that I'm hung up on. And sometimes I'm like, well, did you hear what so-and-so preached in their sermon? Or did you read that blog about this and that? And they're just smiling. They're like, yeah, well. I'm like, what? Yeah, well, what? Like, shouldn't we write a response blog? <laughs> you know? <laughs> and you realize that part of maturity is saying, you know what? That doesn't matter. It's okay. It's going to be all right. Let's just ride this. And all of a sudden you realize that part of maturity is that the fruit of maturity is a united church. And maybe one of the reasons we can't live out our unit, why we can't preserve the peace, is because we're so immature. We're struggling to preserve the peace because in our immaturity we're saying, well, well, that hurt me and that offended me and I don't care about that and I don't like that he didn't say the ten things that are really important to me, you know. I love, this is one of the occupational hazards about being a preacher is you discover that people don't actually hear what you're saying. (laughs) They hear what they already think. And if they hear what they already think in your words, they'll be like, I like that sermon, which basically means I think that too. And then if they don't hear what they already think, or worse, if they hear something that they haven't thought before, they'll say, I didn't like that. That wasn't good. Anyway, I digress. (laughs) So all of this can feel overwhelming. All of this can feel like, how do we do this? Is this evil? Can we really live peaceably with one another as Christians, as the church? Paul says yes. But he says yes, not because you're so great. Listen to verse 15. Instead, by speaking the truth in love, let's grow in every way into Christ, who is the head, and the whole body grows from him. Now watch this, okay? Paul just said, we grow up into Christ. Then he said, the whole body grows from him, both to and fro. We grow up into Christ, and we grow up from Christ. All of this growth comes in and out of Christ. The whole body grows from him as it is joined and held together by all the supporting ligaments. The body makes itself grow in that it builds itself up with love as each does their part. I love how Eugene Peterson paraphrases this in the message. He says, God wants us to grow up. (laughs) To know the whole truth, And tell it in love, like Christ in everything. And then he says, we take our lead from Christ, who is the source of everything we do. He keeps us in step with each other. His very breath and blood flow through us, nourishing us so that we will grow up healthy in God and robust in love. I love that. Christ is the source. 
Christ, it's His breath and His blood that makes it possible for us to live out what we already are. At lots of marriage ceremonies, I'll say to the, the bride and groom, great, you are, gonna, you are declared, pronounced one, and you're going to spend the rest of your lifetimes becoming what you already are. And in baptism, it's like that. We say, you are one now with the church, and you're going to spend the rest of your life becoming one with the church. And it's Christ who is the source of that. Because Christ is the head of the church, He is the source of our new life together. Because Christ is the head of the church, He is the source of our new life together. I have a hunch, friends, that as we keep moving towards Jesus, we end up moving towards one another. It's like the center of a wheel. You keep moving towards the center, all the other spokes get closer as well. And you're like, oh, oh, you're there. Oh, you're there. And sometimes that's good news and sometimes it's uncomfortable, right? (laughs) C.S. Lewis says that friendship love is that moment when you're doing something that you love and you discover someone else loves it too. And you're like, you too? You also like the Broncos or, or Mozart or whatever it is, you, you, and you know the feeling. You show up at an event or at a sporting event or a concert or a movie, and you're like, oh, you were there too? Wasn't that just the greatest? And part of the beginnings of friendship love is that positive moment of saying, you too love Jesus, you too have found resurrection life in Jesus. But there's a sting to it too. Some time ago, Holly and I went to an event we were pretty excited about only to discover that there was a couple people there that we had strained relationships with. I know, hard for you to believe we have strained relationships too with people. And we showed up and we were milling around before the event. And we're like, oh, they're here. It's the awkward, hey, yeah, you know. So for all of the positive, I'm moving towards Jesus. And wow, you are too and you are too. There's also the convicting places of like, oh no, oh no, you? Oh no. And this is why, you guys, sometimes there's this, there's this movement to say, let's, let's live out community as Jesus people. Let's live out community together. And nine times out of ten when I hear people talk about that, what they really mean is, let's just keep it small with the people that we already know. And it's romanticized. It's like, oh, this is true community. But actually, there's no room for anyone that irritates you. And there's no room for someone who's not like you. I once asked Eugene Peterson, I said, what is the challenge with those movements? And he said, if there's no connection to the historic church and there's no room for people that you wouldn't choose, it's not yet the church. If there's no connection to the historic church and there's no room for people that you wouldn't have chosen to be there, because here's the truth, you guys, there's going to be people that you chose, would have chosen and people that you wouldn't have chosen, but guess what? You might be the person that some would choose, and you might be the person that some of them would say, I wouldn't have chosen them, but oh well. (laughs) And there's no more beautiful picture of this than Jesus' table. The night that our Lord was betrayed, there He is seated with the twelve disciples. And you know, it's not like the paintings where they're all on one side, right? Party of 26, please, but there's only 13 of you. We're all going to sit on one side. (laughs) In all likelihood, they're seated all around a table, right? 
looking in each other's eyes. And there's Judas, who some of the folks had some reservations about for a while. And there's James and John, who's always jostling for power. And there's Peter, always got something to say. You don't think they were issues? And yet they were all there at Jesus' table. Because Jesus says, there's no following me one-on-one. You're going to follow me, you're going to sit at my table, and at my table, all these people are invited. So we come every week to Jesus' table as a way of remembering that we are someone that others may not have chosen, but thank God Jesus chose us. And someone else, maybe a person that you would not have chosen, but thank God that Jesus chose them. So the risen Jesus calls, but he calls us into community. Would you bow your heads this morning?